welcome back to the TechCrunch Live podcast, where we help founders build better venture-backed businesses. I'm Matt Burns, and this is the podcast version of our weekly live show where you can register for on TechCrunch.com. And we've got a great show for you today, too. I spoke to CFO turned CEO Christina Ross and her Mayfield partner, Rajiv Putra. Christina's story is great. Prior to founding Cube, she ran finance and corporations and high-growth startups. On today's episode, we talked about the shifting role of the CFO, how Cube caught Mayfield's eye, and how startups can acquire customers from the beginning, and lastly, why you should consider buying your kid a cash register. What follows is a condensed version of the interview. If you want to see the full thing, including Christina's pitch deck, you can view it on TechCrunch Live's YouTube channel. Enjoy. Today on TechCrunch Live, we have Cube, which is a financial planning analysis company that's trying to help businesses bridge that gap between custom spreadsheets and modern planning tools. And you know how it is. You build a beautiful spreadsheet that holds all sorts of data, and you know there are deep insights in there, but your pivot skills only go so far. And as the story goes, Christina Ross, who is the CEO and co-founder of Cube, held multiple CFO roles and saw this opportunity. In fact, she started selling this hybrid product even before Cube had a product. And we're going to talk about that today, too. Joining Christina is Rajiv Butra, a longtime investor at Mayfield. He's on Cube's board and knows about just about everything about building and managing startups. It's going to be a great conversation. Christina, Rajiv, how are you? Good to have both of you here. Thanks for having us. Now, Christina, I would like to start with you. Could you tell us where Cube came from and and where it is today? So I'll start with a little bit of my founding journey. So uh, as you mentioned before, I'm a former CFO. I call myself a serial CFO. I've worked at startups all the way from Rent the Runway when they were about 30 people, pre-IPO, public companies. I was even um, an implementation consultant once doing FP&A software implementations. And in my last CFO role, I thought, how hard could this be? I've done this before. I've been in this role many, many times. It's time to upgrade from just spreadsheets. And so I began an implementation of a leading solution in the market, one where it's currently a competitor of ours today. And it couldn't have gone worse. It was six months to launch. Thought it was going to take a few weeks at most. Someone on the team left. We couldn't get our numbers out. And net-net, we ended up going back to spreadsheets. And it started the question in my mind, of are spreadsheets really the problem or is the problem the lack of good FP&A software? And I started on my journey at that point of talking to other CFOs, other people in the space of why exactly is it that we haven't moved on from spreadsheets? Is it the software out there isn't good enough or that we're waiting for something better? And ultimately our solution and what we do is called spreadsheet native FP&A. And we bridge the gap between, as you mentioned before, spreadsheets, which are great tools. They're the lingua franca of finance. Everyone speaks Excel. Everyone speaks Google Sheets, if you are into that. Um, But we need something more. And so we combine purpose-built FP&A with our data engine, with the ease of use of your spreadsheets that you use every single day. So we meet users where they are versus bringing them to a new proprietary type platform. That's, That's great. How much money have you guys raised so far? We've raised $45 million in total, most recently a $30 million Series B that we closed in April of last year. Yeah. And where do you see you guys in in the marketplace, like your market share and top competitors? So our top competitors are the big FP&A players. You've probably heard of tools like the second generation tools, we call them. So that's like Anaplan, Adaptive Insights, which is part of Workday, Planful. Those are the second gen tools we tend to see most in market. First gen tools being Hyperion, more on-premise type solutions. Uh, In terms of market share, we're going after the market share that no one else is tackling. And we call that the other 90%. And so if the 
entire FP&A market is only capturing 10 to 20% of companies today. There's a reason the other 80 to 90% aren't using them. And we believe in our thesis is companies are not ready to give up their spreadsheets. So we're giving them something better and we're allowing them to keep what they like. Yeah. Why, why do you think people like spreadsheets so much? I love them. We always say they're the lingua franca of finance. So it is the language that everyone speaks. It is as simple as something that you can build a shopping list in, and you can also build a trillion-dollar financial model. Um, it is the, the beginning of no-code software. Anyone can use it, and anyone can code and build incredibly complex solutions. And it's been refined over decades and decades. So for us to think we're going to build a better financial solution than Excel is sort of ridiculous. We would have to essentially recreate Excel to do that. So we let users keep the UI that they love, and we built all the other things around it, all the mechanics around sharing, data consolidation, data transformation, all done on the back end to allow you to continue to use what you love. Yeah, that's great. Now, now Rajiv, I, I got to ask you, when did Mayfield invest and what was your first meeting like? So Mayfield invested in Christina and Cube in October of 2020. So right when, you know, I guess in the early middle phases of the pandemic, we're all trying to figure out how early stage investing should happen. Uh, when we had suddenly, you know, been holed up in 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 our homes and 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 you know behind Zoom, and not being able to uh, meet entrepreneurs uh, in person, and uh, you know Mayfield is an early stage venture capital firm. We have been around since 1969, and we focus very much on uh, working with the entrepreneurs at the earliest stages of company formation. So often that's while they're still building a product, or when they're early in market, or sometimes just have an idea. So. Uh, as a people-first firm, we're very focused on sort of meeting the entrepreneur where they are, which is, you know, it's just them, maybe an idea, maybe a couple people at most. Um, so we invested in the company in October 2020, and that was on the back of spending uh, several months getting to know Christina, first over Zoom, and then actually making the bold move at the time going from the Bay Area to meet her in Boston, and she was in New York. So she drew, drove up to, to Boston. And so we met in Boston and, and, uh, and spent a good day and a half together uh, on the back of us spending a ton of time on Zoom and getting really aligned on her vision, mission, purpose, and how, how we could be you know, great partners for her in helping build, uh, build a Cube into a great company. Yeah, and, and you guys invested in, in Cube again, right? So you were in their seed round and then their Series A and B? So we were in their Series A round. So we led the Series A in uh, in October 2020 on the back of a, a seed round that uh, Christina had done. And uh, and then, of course, we followed up in the Series B as well. What, what exactly about Cube made you go back for more? Well, you know, I, I'd say our, our model tends to be we tend to support companies from you know, start to finish, if you will, if there is such a thing as a finish, right? And our hope is that these companies are built to last and enduring, but we tend to support the companies throughout their life cycle. Very specifically, I think Christina basically and the team delivered uh, more than what they set out to do. Translating her non-obvious insight, which is what I call, you know, her insight into, hey, spreadsheets, billion people use them, lingua franca, and, and, you know, it's a space we were quite familiar with. Mayfield was an investor in Hyperion in the prior generations. 
uh, and we understood the space well, but we had never seen this type of non-obvious insight into really making this market explode. And so she followed through on that vision, not just in delivering the product and the customers and revenue and ahead of every target, which by the way, a planning company should do. She also focused a lot on building the company. So we always say, right, like companies, uh, entrepreneurs have to build two products to build some uh, great business. One is the product, the other is the company. She uh, has done a tremendous job of doing that as well and building out her team and really investing in herself as a CEO as well. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a great collaboration. And I think I'd say those are the two things, um, you know, and that's precipitating into Cube becoming one of the leading companies in this next generation of FP&A software. Yeah. Now, now, what did Mayfield find most intriguing about this product? So I would go back to, again, right? Like for us, the product is the entrepreneur, the market opportunity, and the non-obvious insight connecting the two, uh, suggesting a large untapped market that is, uh, you know, really in a need, the, the problem space is a real painkiller, right? So so it's all of those th things kind of coming together and uh, and Mayfield being a the right partner, if you will, for for the entrepreneur. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a multi-part uh, thing. I think Christina's articulated it pretty clearly, right? It's like her own uh, experience, her own pain point. In a way, I'd say, right, she was meant to do this, right? This was her calling. It started a long time ago. She's trying not to smile right now, but she's trying not to smile. You know, she, it, there's a whole story about her favorite toy being a cash register uh, when when she was growing up. But uh, wait, wait a second, wait a second. So, Christina, your favorite toy was a cash register. Mine was a rocket, and I'm not a rocket engineer. It wasn't just a cash register. Yeah, I saved my allowance from chores and went to. Costco or BJ's Wholesale or whatever was around at the time and paid for a real live cash register that I could play with and, you know, practice counting my money. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you do Excel spreadsheets instead of Mavis Beacon? Was, was there a thing like that? Spreadsheets came later, but I'll, short stories, I'm not allowed to play Clue anymore with the family because I started <laughs> pulling up the spreadsheets. <laughs> That's great. So she, she, you know, so, so she, and you've heard from her, you know, her, her sort of journey and, and sort of, she lived the pain. She'd been obsessing over it. She thought about, you know, maybe I can continue to become a better CFO by being an innovative CFO in the companies I work in and promote the use of technology and, and this, that, and the other. And then finally said, no, you know what, I'm going to go solve this problem. I'm going to become an entrepreneur. I'm going to go code and, you know, learn, uh, you know, how to, you know, use envision and prototype a product, show it to people, even got them to commit to paying for it if she built it. So, you know, a good old fashioned, you know, sort of a way to build a company, right? It start by asking people, would you pay for this? Is your pain big enough? Right. Um, and being, you know, the, the proverbial first salesperson for a company, for a product like this. And, you know, it's not like CFOs are easy to sell to, right? Finance people are not necessarily easy to sell to. And so, Knowing your audience, knowing the pain points so viscerally for years and decades, and then translating that into building a company, and then taking a rather unconventional approach, which, you know, kind of staring you in the face, you know, it's sort of like, you know, non-obvious insights are obvious in hindsight. Yeah, Christina, what was the hardest part transitioning from a CFO to a CEO? I, I 
What's interesting is it was a lot easier of a transition than I would have thought. I'll, I'll mention that and then the hard part. Um, number one, CFOs make unpopular decisions all the time. And as a CEO, everyone says that's the hardest part is suddenly you have to be the bad guy or gal. And as a CFO, this was second nature. Um, number two, you're always quantitative. So that's a big part of the business being a quantitative CEO and a CFO translate really quickly. I think the the most challenging part then is Instead of calculating risk, sometimes you have to trust your gut a little bit more. And as a CFO, I focus more on how do I calculate this and quantify this? And as a CEO, a lot of it is more, how do I feel about this? And sometimes you just have to make decisions and go. Uh, that's good insight. Now, one of the interesting stories about Cube, I think, is how you acquired customers in the early days. You didn't even have a product when you were selling, right? Correct. All right. So tell us about that. Uh, so the story I always tell is when I left my cushy job as the CFO, because I could show up and, well, don't tell us my old CEO, but I can come in and do the job without really thinking. And I made the leap as an entrepreneur. But when I made the leap, I didn't do it with a team, with a product, with any money, with any funding. It was nothing. So it was day one, open up my laptop and start sweating. Like, what do I do today? And so the first thing I decided to do was take the thesis that I left my job with and founded Cube with and started talking to people and learned, did research on the side when I'm not in meetings, what can I learn about starting a company? And I learned that the fastest way to build an MVP is to prototype. And the cheapest way to prototype is just to ask questions. And so I hit the road and just started talking to as many people as possible who would take my meeting. And over time, I started to refine where people got excited about what I was talking about and what they didn't. And I spent 80% of the time listening and 20% talking. Because in the beginning, I really hadn't refined my idea. So I just let them go. What are your biggest problems? What are your challenges? How about this? How about that? And eventually, we got to what Cube is today. And the way I started to get my earliest customers was I built effectively a prototype out of, I used Envision and PowerPoint and just a clickable thing to show them what I was thinking. And everyone will be nice to you to your face and say, that sounds awesome. Congratulations. Must be really nice. Congrats on starting the journey. And then I'd ask them if they'd pay me for it. And I got a different answer. And so I kept that process going until I really solved real problems and not only was someone willing to commit because I had multiple commitments, but someone was willing to sign a contract and put it through legal. That's when you know you have something that people are willing to pay for. And that was the beginning of the journey. What's really important about getting, especially for our type of business, getting early committed customers is that they'll follow through on things like an implementation, on being a good partner with you or a good tester. Because if they just said, sure, I'll try it, you might not see them two months down the road when they're busy at work. And they haven't put anything in on their side of the commitment. So getting early customers to pay up front was tremendously valuable for both of us. Now, there's a question in the comments here, and, and you kind of touched on it there too, but but how do you tell the difference when somebody's ready to give you money and, and the intention to buy? They sign a contract. That signature means so much, even now at our later stages. So first, you have to get them to, first of all, you have to solve a pain. So just a sales process. You're not pitching, here, look what I have to sell take this pen, you're saying, tell me about what your challenges are. You'll figure out what challenges this pen solves. Then when you're ready to go through the process, they need help buying. Your buyer may not necessarily have bought software before. Rajiv mentioned earlier, CFOs don't buy. The, I mean, well, now some CFOs do, but FP&A teams don't necessarily buy tons of software all the time. You have to lead them through the process of here's how it works. Let me show you a few different options. 
And then once they said yes, you have to walk them through and understand what would be the process and what would it look like to actually get this contract signed? Who has to approve it? Does it have to go through legal? Does someone else have to approve it on your side? Get all those qualifications up front. If the customer continues to engage and says, yes, you're almost there, now the last piece is just getting that signature. And once the signature is done, then comes the next part of your journey. But that may be for another part of the conversation. Yeah. Now, now Rajiv, back back to you here. How do you advise startups to acquire customers in the beginning? So I think, uh, you know, Christina alluded to this. Um, acquiring customers, you know, starts with truly understanding the pain of the customer, Right. Uh, that's how you're going to build a foundational product. That's how you're going to sort of really understand. Uh, you know, a lot of times people will build a product because they have a hypothesis and they sort of say, well, you know, I'm really smart. This is how I would solve the problem. And and it's it's not a criticism. It's like you're a smart person, right? So you're 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 like you have some intuition and 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 I think that's a good starting point. It's a good inspiration, but I think you really have to solve, focus on the problem. What is the customer really facing? Uh, what is their pain? And sometimes you have to unpack that a little bit because they might say, this is my pain, but the pain is really this, right? It's like, they might say ABC, but it's really XYZ. So you have to, Christina said this, right? You have to really, really listen and you have to listen over and over. And, uh, and, and so I think, you know, acquiring customers early on is about really understanding pain and it's a synthesis of that pain is the product. And if you build the right product, then you can actually go sell it and you can market it more effectively because it bakes in the the broader need of your your customers. Uh, and hopefully that pain is replicable across many, many, many customers. Christina, do you still do sales calls? All the time. In fact, I have one tomorrow morning. Okay. So with Cube, where are you guys at in five years? Today, we focus on FP&A. It's our core buyer. It always will be. I'm a finance person at heart. I love finance. If you could see the back of my laptop, it is FP&A stickers. I, I love this customer so much. But I do think that over time, we're going to start seeing planning evolve really more into the, the other branches of the organization. And it is today in many respects. A budget owner owns the budget. They get to see the numbers. But for Cube to evolve to more than just FP&A, it's a new space that we call XPNA, which is sales planning and analysis, supply chain planning and analysis, marketing planning and analysis. And it really can take so many different forms and functions to ultimately be part of the centralized brain of the organization. Because if you think about it, there's so many source systems out there that own historical data. Who and what products actually own the future of data? Where does your forecast live? What does the future look like? What type of scenarios can you build? What are some of the what ifs? What are the different paths you can go on? That's both for at a corporate level, but also at an individual department level. Uh, that's great. You guys raised last. I'm looking here at PitchBook in 2022. How much runway do you have left? Plenty. Yeah, plenty. Well, that, that was, you're, you're cutting me off the next question. I'm going to ask you, how, when are you going to raise more money from Mayfield? Rajiv and I, uh, <laughs> we uh, whenever we need to. I mean, the great thing about a plan is you can make it whatever you want it to be. Here's what I advise other founders. You always want to have at least 18 to 24 months of runway. In the environment we walked into when we raised our Series B, I've been telling other founders 24 to 36 months. So we have a, a number of different methods between the debt that we, the equity we raised and also took on a debt line for a runway extension. Okay. Now, last question I got to ask, Rajiv, what, what, what's a good founder fit for Mayfield? 
I alluded to this a little bit earlier. I think an entrepreneur who has a vision, mission, purpose, uh, they're doing this because it's not just about the product. Uh, it's about ultimately building a company that they believe can be transformative in the space that they occupy. But that company represents, uh, you know, uh, something that's going to transform not just that industry, but the lives of the people that it affects, right? The employees, the customers, and the ecosystem, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a. The idea is that their their uh, sort of non-obvious insight is applicable in a way which solves a really big problem. And if done right, it will stand to create a big company. And that big company has transformative effects, uh, you know, in many, many ways. And uh, and the company can become an important part of the community. And I think an entrepreneur that has that type of North Star is the type of entrepreneur we get really excited about working with. That's a good answer. Okay. Well, both of you, thank you so much for this conversation. It was, it was wonderful. I learned a lot about acquiring customers, your early days, and then how I should buy my kids cash registers, all that stuff. Okay. So we have one more section of the show where we're going to switch gears here a little bit and go into what we call pitch practice, where we bring on entrepreneurs and these people just found out that they're going to present and they're going to pitch to us for two minutes. And then we're giving them four minutes of feedback. The idea here is you have to practice your pitch from everyone to people at the bar to your kids. Let's bring on the first company. We have Kevin Yee. Kevin Yee is from Better Data. And Kevin, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share more about what we do today. Absolutely. Well, you have two minutes to present your company starting now. Okay, wonderful. Yep. Good afternoon, uh, Rajiv, Christina, and Matt, and everyone this uh, session and sharing so far has been super informative. So uh, thank you for giving me the chance to share about more about what we do. So my name is Kevin. I'm the co-founder of Better Data. Better Data is an AI synthetic data platform, and we help enterprises to utilize their customer data in a faster and more privacy compliant manner. So I was at IBM's data and AI team when I first learned how, how slow it takes um, to get access to data through my conversations with government agencies as well as different enterprises. It, it can take three to 24 months just to get the data, just to start an AI project. And it's mainly due to strict privacy regulations. And this greatly reduces the speed of innovation and, and more importantly, the impact that these AI models can have right, from predictive medicine to fraud detection. So after speaking with hundreds of data teams in, in startups, hospital research labs and enterprises like banks, insurance companies, they all face the same problem where data access just takes a really long time. So our synthetic data platform solves this problem by making data sharing faster and safer. So we help enterprises convert their customer data into a fully anonymous synthetic version that looks, feels, and behaves just like the real data. So today we have pilots with tech and finance companies, including a Fortune 200 as well as two banks. And we are currently raising our seed round of 2 million with 1.5 million closed. And we're also looking to speak with more data and AI teams um, in tech and finance and other industries who wants to innovate faster on data by going synthetic. Thank you very much. Oh, that was very good. Thank you for ending early. Rajiv, can we start with you? Any feedback? Yeah, Kevin, nice to meet you. Um, so I think real quick, I would say that, you know, you focused on your background and finding that uh, getting access to data is difficult. And that slows down innovation. And you've spoken to a number of companies and uh, or custom potential customers or companies that face this issue. 
I would like to see just a little bit more on that's a good overall statement, but you know, what specifically about, you know, that problem is unique to what you learned, because that's a somewhat of a generic statement, right? You know, every company has difficulty getting access to data, uh, but what's very specific, right? What is the real pain point you have honed in on around which you would create a product? Okay. Number two, and if you haven't yet figured that out, maybe it should be one, two, or three, right? There's two or three types of problems that companies face. Number two, I would say, you know, uh, it'd be helpful to understand who, who's on your team, on your founding team, uh, and what uh, gives you the advantage uh, as, as founding team in this particular space. And thirdly, I'd, you know, probably like to understand a little bit about what you would accomplish with the with the money you're raising, right? Where what milestone or where does this actually get you to? And you know, maybe there can be some conversation on the market opportunity and the market potential. You kind of leave it a little bit open-ended saying it sounds like a pretty big problem, right? Your statement implies it's a pretty big problem, but I think being a little bit more definitive and crisp around why you think it's a big market opportunity kind of helps tie everything together. Great. Christina? So first of all, congrats on closing one and a half out of two. That's the hardest part. So you're you're well on your way to the end. And maybe after this pitch, you'll have the rest of the two. Um, great start off. Very clear. Here's who I am, what we do. Um, so good start. I echo Rajiv's feedback around being a bit more specific around the problem that you're solving. So looking at what is the problem within the problem set or what is the beachhead you're going after you mentioned a few different industries, maybe pick one industry. Like here's here's who we're targeting first with the option of, of going across all industries. Talk a little bit more about market size. What is the market here? Who are you going after? I think adding a few more components to your pitch would help solidify the story of the problem you're solving. Um, and then to, to go over to the solution, what proprietary or unique insights do you have and what does your tech have or how are you doing it differently than others? So maybe understanding a little bit about who's your competition, how are they approaching the problem, and how are you approaching the problem differently? Great. Thank you so much, Kevin. Fantastic. Okay, let's bring on somebody else. Uh, this is Mike. Nice to see everyone. Hi, all. Matthew, Christina, Rajiv, everyone. Pleasure. Mike, I'm not going to try to pronounce your last name or your company name, so you're going to have to do that for me. You have two minutes to present your company starting now. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Mike Kiriaku. Uh, I'd like to start with a thought experiment. Uh, imagine for a moment having a secret weapon that gives you an upper hand in the business world. So a weapon that gives you a bird's eye view of your market, but specifically your specific market. A crystal ball that predicts the future. A team of experts that always have your back. Well, this so-called secret weapon uh, was the Copernicus project, which grew out of what I've been teaching at Berkeley and is now Copernicus, which is the world's first AI-powered business advisor. So with Copernicus, businesses of all sizes have access to uh, customized insights and recommendations that help maximize their success. We're already engaging with 31 fintech platforms, consultants, and banks. We've signed three deals, and we look like we're going to close three more just this month. Um, the indicators are it's going to be uh, change the game for businesses everywhere. So there's a freemium angle here, but we don't think that's the big picture. We actually provide transparency and objectivity. Um, we actually close the um, information asymmetry problem, um, which can uh, allow the global equity markets 
to finally invest in the world's private companies. And that's, for, that's the 45% of global GDP that's been out of their reach. For Copernicus, we'd make tens of thousands on one transaction, and there are millions of these tra uh, transactions uh, alone in the US. So anytime one multiplies tens of thousands by millions, it's a big deal. But for those businesses, we're, they're crystallizing the value from all of those years of hard work. They can pay off their mortgage, they send their kids to college, they retire, they become investors and reinvest in their community. So we believe Copernicus has a massive positive force for uplifting humanity, and we think it's a pretty good side effect for building a world-class venture. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Mike. And that's an AI-powered business advisor. Christina, can we, can we start with you with any feedback? First off, great job starting as uh, with yourself as the expert. So saying I taught this at Berkeley, I have some expertise here. It sounds like you have some initial traction, which is great to hear. One, one thing that was a little challenging for me in the pitch was I didn't fully understand what the product was. I, I understand it's an AI-powered advisor, but I heard something about global equity into private markets and uplifting humanity. I would just advise, since I went through this myself, sometimes when you talk to investors, you might be a couple steps ahead of them, is when you're pitching, take it down to the micro level of my customer and actually spelling it out. My customer is X, we're doing Y. So after you start with your big question and pitch and saving the world, then go into the very specifics of here's our customer, here's who we serve, here's what they're not getting today. Because the other piece here is what problem are we solving that someone has? It's sort of saying we have a solution, but how do we know that the problem is deep enough that someone will pay for it outside of the traction? But overall, great job for a last minute pitch, definitely. That was great. Good feedback. Rajiv? Yeah, Mike, I think I'd echo Christina's sort of feedback. You set the stage uh, somewhat, a little bit dramatically, which is great, right? Um, broad statement, very high level vision, but you know, you got to take it down from the 100,000 foot level down to 10,000 foot very quickly um, and, and talk very specifically about, uh, you know, because again, AI powered business advisor, I'm thinking, okay, it's chat GPT, that chat GPT does that lot. Everybody claims that, right? So what specifically is it? So get narrowed down pretty quickly. Because uh, look, you also said, right, like something about 30 customers uh, you've talked to, you have three who are signed up, global bank, you, you talk about there's some traction here, but then the gap between the traction and this big high level statement is sort of saying, wait a second, what, what exactly are you doing? For whom, when, why, how? Right. So, so, so uh, I would bolt it down a little bit more. And uh, because you obviously come from a place of credibility. And my concern is that if you are too high level and you make a couple of these statements, that credibility can disappear very quickly because somebody can say, well, wh what exactly, you know, who, what, what, so, so what, right? And, you know, I would offer up very, uh, you know, Christina used the phrase problem within the problem, get it very specific, maybe pick one customer. Uh, what is the product? What's the technology advantage? Uh, and who's on the team, right? Uh, I think it's very important for people to hear who is on your team and what you alluded to why you have an advantage. You've been teaching this, you've been working on this, um, but bolted down a little bit more. And, uh, and you didn't say what your ask is, right? You're raising X and where would that get you to? Thank you, Reggie. Appreciate that. All right. Well, that was great. Good, good feedback. 
Thank you very much. Very good. Best of luck to you, Mike. Okay. Well, we have one more. We have Zach. Zach is coming from Zing Data. Zach, I can see you here in the Zoom window. Are you ready to go? Yep. All right, sir. You have two minutes starting now. Hi, my name is Zach. I'm co-founder and CEO of Zing Data, and we're the first platform for mobile-first business intelligence. What that means is you can actually query any major data set from a Google Sheet all the way up to Trino or BigQuery in seconds on your phone. You can collaborate with your colleagues by using at mentions to tag them on action items, and you can set up real-time push notifications and alerts. For instance, when inventory runs out on a fast-selling product or when sales hits a new high. With shared questions and collaboration, it's not just you creating a dashboard. It's actually your whole team coming along and being part of solving the problem. We're already partners with Google, Databricks, Starburst, Trino, and we have customers including 7-Eleven, the largest genetic testing company for dogs, steel manufacturers, and companies in, tr in trucking, logistics, and retail. In fact, we've got users now in more than 54 countries. I ship Facebook's first work in speech recognition and mobile ads and know what it's like to build experiences that feel native to mobile. My co-founder, who I met at MIT 10 years ago in grad school, co-founded and sold two startups since we first met. The opportunity is huge. There's more than 25 times the number of people who use workplace collaboration tools like Slack and Teams than use BI today. And in fact, the average American now spends 4.2 hours a day on their phone. It's actually 4.8 hours a day in Japan. And a lot of workers, especially outside of technology, don't primarily do their work at a desk. They're in the field, they're in the factory, and they're the folks who are fi fixing your utility lines or stocking a retail store that you go to. We are making data accessible to those folks. We've already raised $2.5 million from Kindred and Correlation, and we're excited to partner with folks who are looking to expand data to their workforce in the field. Thanks. Very good, Zach. That was nice. All right, Rajiv, let's start with you. Nice to meet you, Zach. I think, uh, you know, I like the fact that you lead a little bit with tra uh, traction because and, and sort of customers because you have them. Uh, so that's good. You're playing to your strengths. Um, but again, I go back to, right, like what specifically, what's specific, you know, maybe pick one or two real pro like problems that you guys are really addressing. Uh, because let's face it, right, like getting access to uh, analytics and data on mobile is not a new concept. Uh, it's a, it's, it's something, you know, lots of people try and I could ask you a litany of questions saying, well, what about this? What about that? So what is it specifically that you're doing that is uh, different? Uh, is it that you're making your uh, analytics available in every single app that's out there? Or are you becoming more of a uh, app type of company that if somebody's building a field service uh, software or somebody's building sales software, you can be consumed? Or are you building an app for those particular use cases or verticals? Are you a tool? Are you a technology? Are you an app? Uh, and then we start with platform. So a little bit more clarity on specifically what it is that you do that takes you away from not just being generic, right? Because the good and the bad of your market opportunity is it's pretty broad. So, you know, it's much to be desired if you don't get a little more specific and then going to go back broad. The second thing I'd like to understand is 
tied to that is specifically how this would translate to a big market, right? So not that it, it's not applicable very broadly, but our business model is we charge XYZ and this is what people pay. And there's this many endpoints or this many users or whatever, I can give you a tab. Once you actually have users and you actually have data, you have to be then able to back up and say, well, this is kind of what my business model looks like and therefore it translates into TAM. You're out of the non-revenue bucket. Now you're in that traction bucket. So you have to be able to speak to how this might actually pencil out uh, as an opportunity. Um, and then I'd say, uh, you know, what's your ask? Uh, you raised money already. What are you looking to do next? And what would you accomplish with it? Since I'm assuming this is an investor pitch, but again, I've been told that sometimes that's not uh, part of the pitch process. So <laughs> this is a little bit more of a partnerships and uh, user adoption pitch than a um, than an investor pitch. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Then what would uh, then maybe it's like wh why you know why are you pitching us and how we would work together? So you alluded to that that you're working with Google and others. Um, so always right, like I always say, what's the what's the pitch and ask? Uh, so but otherwise, great. Thank you so much. That was good. All right, Christina, you got one minute left. Okay, I'll go fast. First off, congratulations. Sounds like lots of traction, a two plus million dollar fundraise. You've got tons of credibility. You have a team, you have a co-founder. So lots to love about the story as part of your pitch and putting that up front. So that was really great. I would say given the 45 seconds I've left, um, the, the part that I would focus on within the pitch is who is your customer? So you talked about mobile first BI, but for, for who? There were a lot of different examples. So honing in on who is the user would be really helpful to then dig into what does the competition look like? What's the market size? What's the business model? It'll help sort of tie the rest of that story together by focusing in on that. Yeah, that was good. All right, Zach. Well, thanks so much for, for participating and make sure you apply again. And everyone that participated, you can apply again. We'll have you back and see how the pitch evolved. That was very good. Christina Rajiv, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you guys have had a great time and uh, we'll see you all next time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. TechCrunch Live is hosted by myself, TechCrunch Managing Editor, Matt Burns. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo and Maggie Stamets with video production by Ishad Kalkarni, Julio Barrientos, and Dennis Martinez. We are edited by Andrew Mendez, Maggie Stamets, and Teresa Locansolo. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch audio products. If you want your questions to be featured in an upcoming episode, email us at podcast at techcrunch.com. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week.